RadioInfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather Podcast. As always, we're here in Lawfather headquarters. And as always, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and check us out on social media. So, you know, one of the things that happened in the past week, uh, which, you know, it's it was really good to hear. I had a client in the office and was uh, going over some paperwork, and the uh, client said to me, they said, hey, uh, really enjoy the podcast, and, uh, you know, I, I listen when I can, and it's uh, really informative and good stuff. So I really appreciate that. I really appreciate feedback like that. I also do really appreciate every single one of our clients. So uh, if you're a client and, and you're listening, thank you very much. Uh, if you ever have a need for the Law Father, by all means, reach out, uh, 855-LAWFATHER, call or text, or you can uh, email me at lawfather at tampalawfather.com, which is the email address for the show. So whether you have a case or whether or not you just have a listener question and, and want some free legal advice, yeah, that's the place to go. So let's dive into a few things. Uh, a lot has happened over the past week. Uh, we won't be able to cover everything that's gone on over the past week here in Florida and uh, in the sports world, but uh, we'll, we'll hit some high points this week. And, uh, you know, if it's still pertinent, some of the stuff, some of the stuff next week, we'll jump into that. So let's look at the first thing, the thing that's going to have a potential big impact to those of us who live in Florida, not just in Tampa, but in Florida as a whole, uh, would have a big impact on uh, the my business, uh, being that we are a personal injury firm that handles car crash cases. And uh, it has to do with the Florida legislature and a bill that has been around as long as I've been a lawyer. This thing has come up once a year, every year for the past eight years. And uh, this year was no different. It came up again, and the Senate passed it with an overwhelming majority, and then the House passed it with an overwhelming majority. And about a week before the session was set to end, the uh, two bills between the House and the Senate in their language was pretty far apart. And as we got to the end, all right, the... uh, being that today is Monday, May 3rd, okay, the, our previous Friday was when Florida's legislature, le, legislative session ended, all right, and uh, the House and the Senate came together and made the language of the bills match, which that is what's needed for a bill to get to the governor's desk, is that the bills must match, right? So if you have a bill, a House bill and a Senate bill that have different language, well, they don't ever make it to the governor's desk to sign. Uh, a law doesn't become law unless the governor signs, or uh, there are some other ways where uh, if the governor refuses to sign, that it can go back through the through the legislative process and through a specified number of votes uh, can become law. But overwhelmingly, the most popular way, the most common way for a bill to become law is for the governor to sign it. Okay, much much like we see uh, with the president signing bills. Okay, very very similar process, but it's on the state level. Okay, uh, but House, Senate, President slash Governor. All right, it's really very very similar. So uh, kind of cool on that aspect. But what I'm talking about is Florida PIP repeal. Okay, what is that? And it, PIP is personal injury protection. 
And what does it relate to? It relates to car, car insurance. Okay. Now the thought process is, is that if you repeal PIP, then you are going to lower car insurance rates. That's, that's the goal, right? And even as a personal injury attorney, I'm all for lower insurance rates. I mean, I'm no different than anybody else. Just because I work in personal injury and go after car insurance companies doesn't mean I don't have to pay car insurance. I still pay car insurance just like everybody else. So it is something that I'm interested from that perspective, but also from the perspective of the fact that I have a business that relies on car crash cases and the value of those cases and the value of the insurance and the types of insurance. All right. Those of you who are listening, who are doctors, you may know that we do PIP suits, right? Which is just when the doctors don't get paid, we help those doctors recover for the amounts that they should have been paid. Okay. That's the system that we have right now. You have personal injury protection. It's what makes us a no fault state. Okay. We are currently, so the law hasn't been changed yet. Let's just make that clear. As of the taping of this show, May 3rd, and it is about just short of 825. Okay. The PIP repeal has not become law. Now that's not to say that as you're listening to this show, whether when it's released later this afternoon or tomorrow or the next day or the day after that, that we have an answer as to whether or not the governor signed the bill and whether or not this bill will become law. Okay. But as we sit here today recording the show, PIP still is in play, which means we are one of two states in the entire country that doesn't have mandatory bodily injury coverage. Now, what is that bodily injury coverage? That's the coverage that protects you when you get hit by somebody else. Okay. So if somebody rear ends you, that person who did the rear ending, okay, their bodily injury coverage would pick up for your injuries. However, when you're in a state like Florida where there's PIP coverage, all right, your PIP coverage, your personal injury protection coverage goes first. That's your no-fault coverage, all right? That covers your first $10,000 of your medical bills. And then the other person's bodily injury coverage picks up. Now, what are some of the other pieces to the puzzle here? Well, because there's PIP coverage, because there's no-fault, you have to cross a threshold. You have to get over a certain bar. You have to cross a line in order to be eligible for certain things, okay? So to, to take a little bit of a detour, right, into the legal side of what makes up a personal injury case, because it's important to understand how that works, to understand how the interplay of PIP and no PIP works, okay? Your damages, what you can be compensated for in a case, are your past medical bills, your future medical bills, your past pain and suffering, your future pain and suffering, your lost wages, and your future loss of earning capacity. Those six things, okay? But to be entitled to all six of those things, because of PIP, you have to cross a threshold. You have to be above a certain bar. And what you have to do is you have to have what's called a permanent injury. And that permanent injury is is really a term of, of law, I think, more than really a medical type term. Yes, it has a medical basis, but permanent injury is actually defined in state statute, right? So which to me means it has more to do with the law than it has to do with the medicine. If you do not have a permanent injury, then you are not entitled to pain and suffering. You are not entitled to your future medical bills, and you are not entitled to a future loss of earning capacity. You are only entitled to your past medical bills and your lost lost wages. That's it. 
Okay? And that's how it works with PIP coverage in play. Now, that said, right, if PIP coverage goes away, right, and no fault goes away, what's the alternative? What happens? What's the next step? How do you do that? How do you have car insurance? Well, everybody would have to have mandatory bodily injury limits. And you would move to an at-fault type of state, meaning that you can only have your medical bills paid if you're not at fault for the crash, okay? So what does that mean? That bar goes away. That threshold question of whether or not you have a permanent injury goes away. Now, what? let's to take a step back. What is a permanent injury, okay? Uh, scarring, disfigurement, and there's a, a longer definition as to um, a soft tissue injury as to what makes it permanent, but basically that it won't heal on its own. Uh, so a um, labral tear in the shoulder, um, an ACL tear in the knee, uh, a herniation in the spine, uh, disc bulges, we argue those back and forth as to whether or not they're permanent or not. But that is what a permanent injury is. So um, it sounds scary, but... Let's say uh, you you have a you had a couple stitches right from a car crash, that becomes a permanent injury, okay? Because there's a scar, right? Um, you lost a limb, permanent injury because there's disfigurement, that type of thing, okay? That's how that works, and that's the bar that you have to get over. Now, if you cross that bar, right, you get pain and suffering, you get your future medical bills, and you're entitled to any future loss of earning capacity, right? The the future loss of earning capacity is really the toughest to uh, to prove, right? It's probably the most expensive to prove also because kind of need a team of experts to uh, weigh in on that. And you really only see that in the most severe cases. I mean, could you run it on a smaller case? Sure. Uh, but the cost to do it is is somewhat prohibitive. So that's that's what we're looking at. That's, that's what that all kind of moves us to, which, okay, so if we repeal PIP coverage, right, we're completely overhauling the car insurance system in the state of Florida. And there are two camps to that. There is the camp that says, hey, this is going to make rates go up. And there's the camp that says, this is going to make rates go down. And the overarching thought process is, is if we get rid of PIP, we get rid of fraud. Now, I don't know. I, I just, look, I've been in this business eight years. I can count on less than one hand the amount of times I've seen a car crash, at least that has come across my desk that I go, hmm, something seems off about this. Something seems fraudulent about this. Okay. Um, you know, ha- have I heard of instances um, of there being fraud amongst some of the doctors? Yes. But I've only ever heard of them because the insurance companies have done an investigation and found it out. Okay. Um, so is, is there fraud? Sure. Is there a potential for fraud probably in anything that's done at any given time? Yes. Um, you know, do I necessarily believe that fraud is rampant among car crash cases? Uh, I guess uh, if you take South Florida out of the equation, um, from what I understand, fraud is pretty rampant in South Florida. Um, but if you take South Florida out of the equation, I you know, I just don't see fraud as, as being a huge thing. I just don't. And, and look, maybe I'm naive to it. Maybe I'm just missing it. Or maybe I just don't work with doctors that 
that engage in any sort of fraudulent practice because, hey, if I knew, I wouldn't work with them. Um, you know, and, and maybe I just don't have the type of clients that engage in fraudulent activities. I don't know. All I'm saying is I haven't seen it. Okay. Um, like I said, there could be, there could be multiple reasons for that, but that's, that's just my viewpoint. Right. And look, both sides have had studies done. Both camps have had studies done. Stats lie. You can make stats say whatever you want them to say. So I don't really know if changing that law is going to make insurance rates go down. I don't know if it's going to make them go up. I don't know if it's going to make there be less insured people or more ins- more insured people. I just don't, right? Now, my my thought is, okay, that those those people who have 25,000 in bodily injury coverage or greater may see their rates go down, and those that have personal injury protection coverage only or $10,000 in coverage only may see their rates go up. That's my guess. Okay, I think that may be the interplay, but it would no longer be that everybody is automatically entitled to $10,000 in coverage, regardless of who's at fault, right? So what we would see here, what the bill says, what the Senate bill says, it's Senate bill, I believe 54, okay, says that everybody would be, every driver in Florida or every uh, registered owner in Florida, uh, because look, the, the insurance deals with the the owner of the car, not necessarily the driver of the car, owner's primary, driver's secondary, okay? The the owner of the car must have $25,000 per person in bodily injury coverage, okay? And $50,000 per crash. So uh, if you have one person in a crash, it'll pay out, It can the most it'll pay out is $25,000. If you have two people in a crash, the most it can pay out is $50,000. If you have three people in a crash, the most it can pay out is $50,000, but no one person can get more than $25,000, okay? So you couldn't have a scenario where somebody gets $30,000 and uh, the other person gets uh, $20,000. You couldn't have that scenario because it's a per person and then a per occurrence limit. That's what we would see, right? No more PIP. Now, a couple of optional coverages out there. One of the pieces that's optional but is staying the same with how it's worded, right, which I kind of like, is uninsured motorist coverage is remaining essentially unchanged from how it is right now. And how it is right now is statutory, and it says that you are required to carry bodily, or excuse me, uninsured motorist limits at the same rate as your bodily injury coverage limits stacked times the amount of vehicles that you have in your household. That's how it's worded now. And by what I can tell, that's how it's worded in the new bill. And what it allows you to do is say you want less coverage or say you don't want uninsured motorist coverage. You have to sign off and say, I don't want, or I want less than my bodily injury coverage limits for my uninsured motorist coverage. Now, one of the things that I was concerned about as I heard about this bill coming into play was what was going to happen to our uninsured motorist coverage as we know it here in Florida. Because what we know in Florida is that it's unslash underinsured motorist coverage, which means that if the person has, say, a $10,000 bodily injury policy, okay, and I need surgery 
and I have $100,000 in uninsured motorist coverage, I can tap into that $100,000 of uninsured motorist coverage. Okay. Um, some states that have mandatory bodily injury coverage, which is what we would be moving into, states that it's a, it's a true uninsured motorist coverage, meaning that if the person who hits you has any coverage whatsoever, you cannot use your uninsured motorist coverage. All right. It's a really fine line difference. Okay. But it can be really, really important. Uh, we just actually over the past couple of weeks resolved two cases in the office that had 25,000 in bodily injury coverage. And we had a hundred thousand dollar policy for the uninsured motorist coverage. Both of it was a $30,000 property damage hit. So big, big hit. Okay. Uh, totaled the car. Actually, I don't, it was a, a, a more exotic type car. It was a pretty expensive car. Um, I don't actually believe it was totaled out, but $30,000 in property damage. Huge, huge hit. Pictures were, were great for us. Okay. Um, something I love to see is big, big damage pictures. It helps our cases a ton. But both people needed procedures. And if we had a strict uninsured motorist coverage, right, like some states have, we would have been stuck at the 25000 The two clients most likely would have not been able to get the procedures that they needed, right? So that's the difference. And it, it looks like, from what I can tell in the Senate bill, that our uninsured motorist coverage will remain unchanged. It will remain an un-slash-underinsured coverage, which... From a personal injury lawyer standpoint, that is something that I love to see. Okay, um, that'll help us out a lot. So, you know, all in all, could this be a good thing? I, I think it could be. Okay, um, there there is likely to be a, a an offering within. I believe that the insurance companies, by the way it's worded, it's they keep striking out the the may and shall. And uh, <laughs> for those of you who aren't necessarily uh, have been to law school, may and shall are, are two small words that have really, really big meaning in law. Okay. Um, may becomes a, you can do it, but you don't have to do it, but you can. Uh, shall means you absolutely have to do it. Okay. And I, I've seen it's, it's been crossed out and put back in and crossed out and put back in either way. Um, uh, shall and may, um, we'll see how the final version comes out signed, uh, but medical payments coverage that's, is either going to be five or $10,000 in coverage. It'll be optional coverage. It's actually a coverage that exists now in Florida. It's just very rare to see it because we have PIP coverage. Um, not exactly sure why you would want it if you have uninsured motorist coverage. Um, actually I can, as I say that, I know why, because it would cover you regardless of fault. Okay. So if you did the rear ending of somebody, your medical payments coverage would still kick in, right? It becomes unnecessary, although they still offer it right now, as we stand with PIP, it really becomes unnecessary when you have PIP, but without PIP, it can actually cover regardless of fault. So, uh, it'll be offered at either five or $10,000, um, I, I believe the way it's worded that it would be in either or, right? Not that it'll, not that the final bill will say it has to be 5000 or that it has to be 10000 but that the offering by the insurance companies can be 5000 or it can be 10000 right? So we may see some slight variation or version of what we know today as PIP, um, but 
there'll be a whole wholesale change in the way we work cases, uh, in, in what's needed for cases and, uh, just really big differences. The only thing that I know is that time will tell whether or not those changes are good changes and whether or not those changes will result in lower premiums, right? You can show me any study in the world. It's just, you know what? Here's what I see. Okay. And I'll tie it into what we see and what we do all day, every day. Right. There is a doctor in Tampa who and I've had him testify in a trial and he testified to this in trial. And I knew he had to testify this way in trial because I had deposition transcripts from him in the past from other trials and other trial transcripts that said that this was true. Right. And I don't remember the exact number. I know the number was greater than 90. It figures about 90 to 95% of the time, this doctor found injuries or no injuries consistent with the side that hired him. Okay. And I think studies fall in that same category of, I think they have a tendency to find for the side that hires them, right? The camp that goes, Hey, I want to find that insurance will go up. I would, I would highly guess that the study will find that the insurance will go up and the camp that says, oh, it'll go down and it'll decrease fraud. Hey, that, that study will find that. Okay. So that's a little update there. Like I said, by the time this airs, the governor may sign the bill, right? And this will give you a, a little preview of what it's going to look like, or this may go away and the governor may say, I'm not signing. I don't know. But as we know right now, it's still sitting on his desk. All right. Just want to change gears here real quickly, get into uh, something, I guess, maybe a little bit more interesting than car insurance, although I think car insurance has an interest to people because if we own a car, which most of us in Florida do because there's mass transit is not like, say, New York City, um, you know, it, it just, it's something that impa- it impacts all of us. But here's a little fun one. Let's look at the NFL draft and let's look at it from a side that you don't typically see. Now, those of you who have been following along, for a while know that I used to be an NFL agent, right? Uh, it was this past year that I gave up my NFL license. So this is the first time in a few years that I didn't have the all out sprint to NFL draft day. So we all, we all know about, you know, what we see on ESPN and what goes on with the players, but what is it like from an agent side? What happens with the NFL draft and what's that process like? Let's take a little bit of a medium dive. I'm going to call it a deep dive, but let's take a, a medium dive into the life of an NFL agent. So it watch it on TV, watch Jerry Maguire, Maguire. It's all glitz and glam and, you know, partying like a rock star. And the reality of it is it's pretty much the furthest thing from the truth. <laughs> it just really is. Um, it is not like that at all. Uh, and I focused on small school guys. I had a couple guys out of North Dakota State uh, and some other small schools. But I'd say the biggest school that I worked with was North Dakota State. Um, so just imagine that, you know, Florida guy going out to North Dakota State in uh, in spring, early spring. So um but what's it look like? What's the process like? How do you get these guys? And, you know, the number one thing is relationships. So we would build these relationships over time. And these these relationships took years to build. And every once in a while, you'd get lucky and you'd get 
in with a player and, uh, you know, a player of some quality. And that might lead to more down the line. But how do you get there? Well, you know, starting, uh, starting pretty quickly after the draft, you start putting together a list of guys that you want to target, that you want to get to talk to. And you uh, get your approvals from, from the school, from the team, uh, whoever you need to. Okay, well, the state too. There's, there's state licensure that's involved with that. And you put all those pieces together and you start talking to the player. And then you go travel out to meet the player, uh, which in my experience hadn't ever been in Florida. Uh, for, for a state that's so rich in NFL talent, I always found guys that were far outside of the state of Florida, um, a couple of guys from Minnesota. So um, nothing was ever close. Uh, always traveling out to meet the player, meet the family, go over everything, um, spend hours and hours between phone calls and in-person meetings, uh, follow-up phone calls, and you know that type of thing to try to get the player to sign with you. Okay, that's, that's how that would work. Now, um, you kind of go through, You'd watch the player's season, stay in contact with them uh, on some level, and get through to the end of the season. And we're talking about normal times, not COVID times. This year's way different than normal, okay? Um, but you'd get to the season would end, and the player would need training. So you as the agent, I don't know when this started. I don't know how this started, but somewhere along the line, Years ago, years before I even got involved, someone decided that the agent should be the one paying for the player's training. So we as the agents would find trainers that, that we liked, that could do a good job, that, that knew NFL combine-style training inside and out. Okay, uh, We would pay for the training, the player would go through the training, and next up would be Pro Day. And Pro Day is essentially the NFL combine, but at the school. Okay, and by essentially, I mean they do the same drills. The purpose of it is to be a showcase. All right, so if you're familiar with the NFL Combine and those type of drills, that's what goes on in a pro day. Now, a lot of times they'll do specific position player work uh, after they've gone through all of the drills. So if the school has a quarterback that has draft potential, the quarterback will throw. Uh, a lot of times, if there's defensive backs that have uh, draft potential, uh, they'll they'll do some defensive work along with uh, some receivers on the other side of the ball. Okay. Now, as the agent, you're expected to be there. Okay, so you're traveling out to it, and uh, God forbid if there's a conflict, right? Then you got to pick between two players. And uh, when I was doing it, we had uh, there's two guys, myself and uh, and another guy here from Tampa, another local attorney from Tampa, and we'd pretty much divide and conquer, right? And uh, you know, just before COVID hit, we had, so this was literally March, would this be March 2020? We had a week and a half of travel booked for the last week in March, and then everything shut down. We, I was scheduled to be in Texas, Minnesota, North Dakota, and uh, one other place, maybe back to Texas, uh, before coming back to Florida. Literally a week and a half of travel. Um, I probably had eight, nine flights that I have uh, points for now or, or credits for uh, because everything shut down. But that is what it looks like. That's what Pro Day looks like because he had half our players, I had half our players, and we just took and said, okay, how do we get to see all of them based on all the different Pro Days? And uh, 
you know, make it all work with all the different travel. And getting out to North Dakota, by the way, from Tampa, not the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> and uh, as a side note, the last flight into North Dakota from Minneapolis, which I believe is only like one of two flights, right, gets in after the rental car places close. And there's not exactly a whole lot of mass transit, and it's not really walking weather in North Dakota in, in March. So um, there are some challenges, but that's what it looks like. It's like I said, it's not all glitz and glam. You're running around, you sit through pro day and you hope, you hope beyond all hope that that player, especially I usually had specialty guys. So I usually had uh, D backs was what I generally had. You hope that they ran a good 40. You hope that they ran the agility drills really good. And you hope, that their vert was pretty substantial, okay? But all you could do was hope. You couldn't do anything else, right? And God forbid that player didn't run what, what they needed to run in the 40. Sometimes it was your fault. And that was kind of the weird thing about the business, okay? But anyway, and, and I never had anybody, right? I, I never had that horror story of, well, this and this happened, so it's your fault, but that's kind of the common thread in the industry. But anyway, you spend all this time doing all that. Then after that, hey, now you're back home. By back home, I mean in the office, taking and breaking it all down. You're getting information out to teams. You're communicating back and forth with teams. And you're hoping beyond all hope that you can get a little glimmer into what's going on, right? What's going on in that team's process, where your player lies in that process. And guess what? It's nothing more than a guess because it doesn't matter how many teams tell you they love your guy. They only love your guy so much, right? And reality, it doesn't matter how good you are. Not all 32 teams are going to want you, right? Because not all 32 teams are going to have a need at that position. So it's really kind of an interesting thing when you think about it, right? Um, you know, take this year, uh, Trevor Lawrence. Not all 32 teams needed a quarterback. Now, we all knew he was going to go number one overall. But that said, let's just assume, for example, he wasn't going to go number one, right? And you know, because, let's just say this, let's say the number one team had a Tom Brady at quarterback, right? Or a Ben Roethlisberger at quarterback, somebody that wasn't going anywhere. That team doesn't have a need, right? So you may have the best player in the draft, but if that team doesn't have a need, it doesn't matter. So not every team is going to be interested. But basic bottom line, you spend after pro day, Lots of time burning up the email, burning up the cell phone just to get you to the draft day and, you know, kind of talking your client off a ledge because a lot of it is, hey, it's going to be okay. This is the feedback I've had. This is, this is what I've heard. This is, you know, this is all of that, right? And then you get the draft day and that's when all the wheels fall off. They're, all bets are off. Nothing matters. All the prep work that you've done, all the conversations that you've had, they, for the most part, mean absolutely nothing. Because all that matters is where the person is on the board, who goes on the board before your guy, and when your guy is available, does that team still want him? That's it. That is it in a nutshell. Um, it is probably the most stressful three days that you can imagine, especially for small school guys. So you're going through the draft and you know, you're charting and figuring, okay, this team has a pick in round four or five. Uh, they don't have one in six. They have one in seven. Or, hey, they're done at round four. So, hey, we're going to start reaching out to them right after round four because, hey, they don't have anything to do with the rest of the draft. Let's start putting a an undrafted free agent deal 
together in the event our guy doesn't get signed. So there's a lot of that going on all while the draft is happening. Okay, a lot of conversations back and forth. Hey, you still interested? Uh, my guy is still interested in you guys. Are you guys still interested? And then once that sprint is over, then pandemonium really hits when the end of round seven comes. And now we're in undrafted free agent territory and it is an absolute free for all. It's kind of fun, very stressful, but it's really an interesting thing because now it's phone calls, text messages, back and forth, one phone in one hand, another phone in another hand, all while text messaging other clubs and trying to get your player the best deal. And because I generally had small school guys, that's where I, I kind of lived. I lived in undrafted free agent land and it was fun and uh, it was fun and it was stressful. And sometimes though, it was demoralizing because you just would throw your hands up and go, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Everything matched up. This club and this club and this club said they loved you. Absolutely wanted you. Undrafted free agent time comes and it's crickets. It's, hey, you guys still interested? No response. Hit somebody else up the chain. You guys still interested? No response. Right. So it's, it's an interesting time. It's a stressful time. Um, but that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like from the agent perspective. Um, if you do get lucky and you do have a team that wants to sign your guy, a lot of times they'll have you the contract over that night. Especially, look, for an undrafted free agent, a lot of times you don't really have a lot of leverage. So you're basically signing what they send you, right, for the most part. Um, and that's assuming that, that the club isn't trying to have them sign something underhanded, right, um, which happens sometimes. I know it's no one really talks about it, but it does happen sometimes. Um, you know, the uh, the last contract a player signed to mine was with the Bucks. Um, it's kind of coincidental, kind of cool though, in that perspective also. And you know, they they play things um, really above board. So we had no problems. Contract came in, reviewed it, player signed, we signed, and uh, kind of off to the races. So that's how that looks. You know, it's it's a really grueling schedule. It's it is really difficult. And uh, those of you who you know follow along on social media, look, I got two young kids, and that that really became the catalyst for getting out all of the travel. So um, those of you who know that I, I do refer to uh, formerly being an NFL agent and may wonder why, uh, that's the why, right? I enjoyed it. it. It's a good line of work. It really is. Um, it's pretty rewarding when you sign a player to your agency and uh, that, that player signs uh, an NFL contract. But you know what? To miss that time, that travel time with my boys um, wasn't something that I wanted to do. So um that's the why, and uh, but that's what it looks like. That is the life of an NFL agent. So um, now, just uh, as an aside, those of you who are listening who do uh, follow pro sports or maybe athletes yourself, I, I've transitioned actually some of the time that I would spend on NFL work. And I, I call it consulting work in a sense, but it's technically legal work, but uh, working with uh, some professional athletes in terms of the business side. And... Um, doing some legal work on the business side. And, you know, here's the thing. Sometimes uh, managers and agents for professional athletes get a little leery of working with an attorney who has been an agent or is an agent because they're afraid the person's going to try to steal their client. Look, the reality is I have no ambition to get back in because I can do all the legal work right here from Tampa and I never have to uh, leave my voice, right? So for me, that's not a problem. It's not a concern. So, um, 
but yeah, we, you know, I do, uh, do some legal work for some professional athletes right now, uh, on the business side, which is kind of cool. Um, there's a lot going on and you know, those of you who are listening, who may be professional athletes, a lot of people that are out for your money. Okay. May seem like your best friend, but they may have an ulterior motive. And I don't mean your true best friend. I, I mean the guy who approaches you with a business deal that acts like your best friend. That's who you got to look out for. Not not the guy that you grew up with that um, is truly your best friend. Okay. So anyway, uh, running a little long, getting a little rambly here. So you know, I think that's a good place to end the show for today. If you have any listener questions, please reach out to me. I love answering listener questions. All right. And um, from Lawfather Headquarters is the Lawfather Podcast. Lawfather out. <laughs>